Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. 1 Samuel, chapter 29, and beginning to read at the first verse. The Philistines gathered all their forces at Aphek, and Israel camped by the spring in Jezreel. As the Philistine rulers marched with their units of hundreds and thousands, David and his men were marching at the rear with Achish. The commanders of the Philistines asked, What about these Hebrews? Achish replied, Is this not David, who was an officer of Saul, king of Israel? He has already been with me for over a year, and from the day he left Saul until now, I have found no fault in him. But the Philistine commanders were angry with him and said, Send the man back, that he may return to the place you assigned him. He must not go with us into battle, or he will turn against us during the fighting. How better could he regain his master's favor than by taking the heads of our own men? Isn't this the David they sang about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. So Achish called David and said to him, As surely as the Lord lives, you have been reliable, and I would be pleased to have you serve with me in the army. From the day you came to me until now, I have found no fault in you, but the rulers don't approve of you. Turn back and go in peace. Do nothing to displease the Philistine rulers. But what have I done? asked David. What have you found against your servant from the day I came to you until now? Why can't I go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? Achish answered, I know that you have been as pleasing in my eyes as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the Philistine commanders have said, he must not go up with us into battle. Now get up early, along with your master's servants who have come with you, and leave in the morning as soon as it is light. So David and his men got up early in the morning to go back to the land of the Philistines. And the Philistines went up to Jezreel. Shall we pray as we stand? And may the word of God dwell richly in my heart from hour to hour. May the mind of Christ, my Saviour, live in me from day to day. Father God, we pray that your words would now teach us, dwell richly in us, so that we might know and love the Lord Jesus all the more. In his name, amen. Please do sit. And if you've closed it, you might like to open up uh, your, your Bible again, around the seats, page 301, back to 1 Samuel chapter 29. And if you like this sort of thing, you might find a, a corner of one of the bits of paper you were given on the way in to to make some notes. Uh, We are heading towards the summer and uh, I guess for some of you that means uh, thinking, looking forward to heading off on holiday. And maybe as you head through, uh, I don't know, the airport or the service station, you might pick up a bit of summer reading and uh, you might end up with one of those sort of crime-thrilling, page-turning, trashy novels that we all love to ingest on the beach. And if you do, there's a fair chance that you'll end up reading a bit of non-linear narrative and yes I did have to look up what that meant 
you know the feeling, you've read through a few chapters and the narrator has spent those chapters developing a plot line, a storyline and some characters and you feel very invested in the story and the characters. And just as you're hooked, the chapter ends and the author moves on to the next chapter and some different characters, maybe in a different place and a different storyline, maybe even a different point in time. And after a few pages, you're similarly invested in the new story, but for the first couple of pages, you're just thinking, no, take me back. What's going to happen to the other lot? And if you've been following through 1 Samuel with us these last few weeks, you might feel a bit like that right now. Because like a good summer holiday airport page-turner of a novel, of a novel uh, the narrator who is recording this period in Israel's history is all the time adding tension by moving back and forth between characters and strands of the story, not least between Saul and David and David and Saul, all the time building tension, inviting comparison between the two We've actually reached a point, speaking of comparison, where David and Saul both find themselves troubled, compromised, in difficulty, in danger. You might remember if you were here that that last week we lurched ahead in time to see the kind of sorry end that Saul would meet. But don't forget where we left David hanging in the storyline. Remember where we are. It's hard to remember, isn't it, between one week and another. Back in chapter 27, do you remember? Uh, David had run away from Saul to Gath. That's Philistine country. That's enemy territory of all places. You might remember that David's motives in doing that were pretty questionable. So you remember, God had said to David, I'll make you king in Israel. And God had said to David, therefore, that that Saul, in the end, won't harm you, though he has been repeatedly trying to. But for David, at that point at least, it it seemed that he'd begun to doubt those promises of God. And it is a mark of David's desperation, isn't it, that that for him, running away to Gath seemed like the good option. Remember, this is David who has made a career in military conquest against the very people where he now seeks refuge. And yet, extraordinarily when David gets there he seems to do pretty well so he persuades or really deceives this Philistine king Achish that that he David the great Israelite warrior has really changed sides and now goes out raiding against his own people Israel and so Achish as I think we'll see is not exactly the sharpest knife in the block gives David uh, the, the safety of a nice countryside estate at Ziglag. See, David is going out on bloodthirsty raids, but he leads his men, unbeknown to Achish, not against other Israelites, but still against other Philistine tribes. And at this point, David might well feel pretty pleased with himself. I mean, his little scheme has paid off. All right, it began with deception born of desperation, but it's turned out pretty well, right? He's far from Saul, he's safe from capture, he's living the dream. It's a bit like escape to the country, Philistine style, only with a bit of added violence. If you can imagine that. What could possibly go wrong? But it all starts to unravel 
unravel in a big way. Chapter 28, verse 1, do you remember? When the combined Philistine forces decides to go out to war against Israel. And David, whom Achish has come to trust and admire, will, of course, be expected to line up in the Philistine ranks. It's only natural, right? War against Israel will be right up David's street, won't it? Because David has been going out raiding and killing Israelites for over a year now, hasn't he? Except he hasn't. You see, for all David's murky motives and questionable decisions, he is innocent, at least when it comes to shedding Israelite blood. And so, here's where we left him. David faces a hopeless dilemma. He fights his own people, or he refuses and has his cover blown. And either way, it's kind of hard to see how David will survive, much less how God will keep his promise to make David king. And the tension of all of that gets heightened again when you read of the scale of the Philistine army. This does not look like a fight they're going to lose. So have a look at the start of our passage, chapter 29, verse 1. The Philistines gathered all their forces at Aphek, in Israel camped by the spring in Jezreel. The Philistine rulers marched out with their units of hundreds and thousands. The army is vast. Things do not look good for Israel. And yet David marches out in the Philistine ranks. But then the tension gets ramped up even more when we remember what we know because of what we have read in the previous chapter. Do you remember through all the business of of Saul and the medium at Endor, skipping ahead in time, we know as the readers that Israel will lose this battle and that Saul will be killed. And yet on in the Philistine ranks marches David. That is the setting for our chapter today as they prepare for war. The chapter is basically a lot of conversation, a lot of back and forth. They're lining up on the battlefield, but in some ways it has more of the feeling of the courtroom about it as the exchanges go back and forth. So there's the first point if you're taking notes. The Christ on trial. The Christ on trial. It, it, it is an almighty pickle that David has landed himself in. Remember the same David who is king-elect to Israel, anointed chosen by God and remember as well what David has learned these last weeks again and again he's learned that to harm Saul to grasp the kingdom for himself by violence to force things along as it were on his time scale and not God's is deeply wrong and again and again David has been so careful to avoid that it's one of the things that's been so laudable about him and yet now we see David lining up in battle against Israel in a battle we know they will lose, in a battle we know will end in Saul's death. And you've got to ask, how on earth will it end? So often that's how lies and deception work, isn't it? Even for us, one leads to another and another, and before we know it, we're trapped. That's where David is. You you can't help feeling he he needs help. He needs a saviour extraordinarily one arrives his own personal saviour it's a Philistine ruler verse 3 the commanders of the Philistines asked what about these Hebrews you see the other generals are are looking at Achish's troops and, and seeing what he seems blind to he is marching out for war 
against the Israelites with 600 Israelite troops within his own ranks. Again, you've got to say that perhaps Achish is not the brightest crayon in the box. They go on, verse 4, send him, that's David, send him back that he might return to the place you've assigned him. It's bad enough, Achish, you've given him the countryside estate, but let's not have him on the battlefield, come on. Not least because, as they go on to say, David will turn against us during the fighting. How better could he regain his master's favor than taking the heads of our own men? In other words, even if you're right, Achish, even if he has changed sides, even if he is estranged from Saul, what better chance for him to get back in the good books by pulling off an Israelite victory from within the heart of the Philistine army. After all, they say, don't forget who David is. Verse five, isn't this the David they sang about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. In other words, even the, even the songs that the kids sing in the playground should tell Achish that he's harboring a dangerous man. As far as the other Philistine rulers are concerned, Achish is hopelessly naive. There's a man called George Blake who lives happily in a Moscow suburb. He's recently celebrated his 90th birthday. Very content man at a ripe old age. He was for many years an agent of MI6, living happily in Britain, apparently carrying out spy work for the UK government. But it later came to light that, that Blake had been recruited and turned double agent for the Soviet Union and had been passing information to Moscow that led to the deaths of many British assets around the world. He was caught and put in prison at, at Wormwood Scrubs, but he, he eventually escaped through East Germany and on to, to the Soviet Union. It is a dangerous business to have a foreign traitor living in your lands. But Akish is having none of this. See, with every critique, he, he leaps to David's defense. Did you see it? With the most effusive of language. So three times he rallies to the defense of David's innocence and his character. So have a look, verse three. Is this not David who was an officer of Saul, king of Israel? The rest of them are thinking, yeah, that's the problem. But on goes Achish. He has already been with me for over a year now. And from the day he left Saul until now, I have found no fault in him. And then again, verse six, um, as Achish passes on the bad news of, of David's rejection from the battlefield, as surely as the Lord lives, you have been reliable and I would have been pleased to serve with you in the army. From the day you came to me until now, I have found no fault in you. And if that isn't enough, he comes back for a third round. Verse nine, I know that you have been as pleasing in my eyes as an angel of God. See, remember where David is. You would think that, that in this desperate situation, remember he, he, he can fight his own people or he can refuse and have his cover blown. You would think as he is ejected from the battlefield that for David, salvation has come. You know, you know, a way is provided for him to walk away. What a remarkable provision. Remember, we, we know David is there under false pretenses. We know David is deceiving Achish. We know Israel will lose. We know Saul will be killed. We know David's lies have led him into this cul-de-sac. We know David desperately somehow needs a way out. And here it is on a plate, all of which makes David's response in verse eight seem a bit bizarre, doesn't it? 
Verse 8. But what have I done? Asked David. What have you found against your servant from the day I came to you until now? Why can't I go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? (laughs) Clever David. Cunning David. In fact, one commentator says about this verse, David is being so cunning here, even we are not quite sure what he is up to. (laughs) It could be that David is keeping his cover intact. right? I mean, to leave the battlefield without a protest for for a warrior of his caliber, I guess, would have aroused some suspicion. It could be that. The, The alternative is that the Philistine rulers are actually right, that David really was planning some kind of bruise from within, you know, to try and deliver victory uh, into the hands of Israel against the Philistines. I mean, it sounds pretty daring, doesn't it? Mind you, when you think back um, over the, the exploits of David in his junior career as a military officer, it's not entirely out of character. And look at the ambiguity as well. Did you see it of David's words at the end of verse 8? He says, why can't I go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? Well, which my lord the king are you talking about, David? Is it Achish or is it really Saul? It seems to me that, that as with so much that we've encountered these last weeks, it, it's just kind of hard to know where David's real intentions or motivations lie. And in a funny sort of a way, it, it seems to me that that takes us to the heart of this chapter. So there's the second point if you're taking notes. The God who is in charge. Here's a question. Who or what is notable by its absence in this chapter? We're coming to the end of the book, but there's only a couple of pages left. We've reached the final climactic battle scene. That's how every good movie ends, right? All the characters are there. Everyone's gathering together. Saul and David and Israelites and Philistines. Everybody's there. But who is not? And who's not mentioned? It's God, isn't it? Not a single mention of God through the whole chapter. And yet it seems to me that his presence in the chapter screams all the louder because of it. You you might remember last week in, in chapter 28, which was largely a chapter, you'll remember, about Saul and about his demise. There was one verse, it seemed to me, in the middle there that stuck out like a sore thumb. Have a look at chapter 28, verse 17. It was just dropped in the middle, not explained, not developed. Here it is. The Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hands, that's Saul, out of Saul's hands, and given it to one of your neighbors, David. Another restatement of this promise. And you had to wonder in the midst of everything else that was happening, how on earth is that going to happen? You know, at this stage, we know that, that David is in almost as much of a mess as Saul, far from home, far from Israel, caught up in a tangled web of his own deceit. How is it going to happen? Well, only God could do that. That is the sovereign God. The kind of God who is in charge of kings and nations. The kind of God who effortlessly shapes history for his own purposes. And look, it isn't just that God is sort of sovereign in some general way. That's the sort of thing that trips very easily off the tongue. It seems to me that the very fact these chapters are filled with such a mess and a muddle of mixed motives of half-truths and shady intentions shows you the remarkable sovereignty of God. 
in a situation where we can't even really work out what's going on, God not only knows, but he somehow is shaping every part of every action to bring about his purposes and promises. Don't get me wrong, there's no sense that David, from his perspective at least, is acting under compulsion. I know David chose to go to Gath. David chose to spin the lies. David landed himself in the mess. And yet, even in all of that, God somehow weaves his sovereign will. And that is a very powerful God indeed. The God who is able to save David as a young man from the Philistines and to keep him safe later on from Saul is big enough, it seems, to save David even from himself. So when life is a mess for you, for your family, or this week and many other weeks when you turn on the TV and and, and look at a world that seems so out of control, when life is a mess, mess even because of our own sinful choices, know this, God is in control. Of course, Saying that God is sovereign is, is not necessarily the same thing as saying that, that we can look at events and somehow understand them all and somehow read our way back into the mind of God. And very often we don't know what's going on at all. Sometimes we cannot possibly fathom what's going on around us. But when it all seems like chaos, if you know nothing else, know this, God is in control. The striking thing here as well that we can't escape is that God is also sovereign over whom he saves, who he shows his grace to. See, for all that we've been encouraged on many, many occasions to see the contrast between Saul and David, you've seen that uh, through the weeks. Here it just seems the thing that, that our attention is drawn to is not that they're different, but just that they're quite similar. See, both have, to some extent, walked away from the Lord. Both are, to some extent, caught in compromising situations. And yet, we've seen last week and this, Saul is judged, David saved. And if you wonder about the fairness of that, then bear this in mind. Firstly, we've seen this la- these last weeks that, that Saul is more than culpable. Now, he clearly chooses to walk away from the Lord's even to hunt down David, the Lord's anointed Christ. Secondly, that is the heart of the gospel, isn't it? That that God, in his mercy, would choose to save some. And if you think that isn't fair, well, in some ways you're right. It's just that we ought to be aware of pleading too hard for fairness. Because in some ways, the only fair response of God is to give judgment to all. All have sinned, all have walked away, even Saul, even David. If anything is scandalous here in in the mess and the muddle, it it is that God would choose to show favour to any. God, the great king over all the earth, God himself, he governs nations. He works out things according to his will. He isn't our pet to be tamed. He is awesome and powerful. He is the God who is in charge. He isn't pocket-sized. He's big. There is enough there to, to drive us to our knees in worship of him. And even more so when you think that this God, 
would have chosen and called and saved and shown his kindness to, to us if we trust in Jesus. So let me ask you, are, are you thankful? Do, do words of gratitude just, just sort of slip off our tongues so easily? You know, do, do we sing things like, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch, wretch, like me, Do we just sing things like that so easily and quickly that, that we've forgotten quite how amazing it really is? Lastly then, the innocence of the Christ. In all of this, in, in all of this talk about sovereignty and so on, don't forget who David is. He's not just anyone, he is the Christ, that is God's anointed king. Remember then that when we read the Old Testament, David is the picture, little taste, little foreshadow of what the Christ, the Lord Jesus, would be like. Now, you might quite fairly say that perhaps David isn't doing the best job of being a picture of Jesus at the minute, and that might well be fair, but for all that his words are spoken unwittingly, and perhaps born out of weakness or flattery, when Achish speaks in praise of David, there's a sense in which he is speaking more truth than he realizes. As we close, hear again what he says. This is verse six. From the day you came to me until now, I have found no fault in you. See, as far as Achish is concerned, David is completely innocent. And he's right. Except... David isn't innocent in the way that Achish means it. You know, we all know that David's been spinning Achish a tail. But there is one other very important sense in which David is innocent. See, he hasn't turned against his own people. He hasn't, as Achish believes, been off attacking Israel or grasping the kingdom from Saul for himself. So often through this book, we've looked at Saul and we've longed for a better leader. Again and again, that's been the thing, hasn't it? You know, one who wasn't quite such a, a maniac, so double-minded or self-obsessed. You know, we've longed for a leader who is really for Israel, for God's people. And David, for all his faults, hasn't turned against his own people. He is the better leader that God's people need he is the better king that they desire and yet even as I say this maybe you feel a bit cheated or shortchanged you know he is a better leader than Saul by but not by an awful lot you know, for all the kind of mixed motives and murky dealings of this chapter, you can't help wishing again, can you, for another better leader. You know, if the, if the story of 1 Samuel has been about this hunt for a leader, there's got to be a sense of dissatisfaction, hasn't there, at this stage? You know, is this it? For all his undoubted strengths, for all his advantages over Saul, is deceitful David really as good as it gets? As we finish, listen to these words from 1 Peter chapter 2 and make your own mind up. Jesus committed no sin and no deceit was in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, 
He did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. By his wounds, you have been healed. You were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. There is your better leader. There is the true Christ, Jesus. The only sin or double-mindedness or deceit he knew was ours as he bore its punishment on the cross on our behalf. Look to the Lord Jesus. He is your good shepherd, your better leader, and your true king. Let's pray. We thank you, Father God, for your Son, the Lord Jesus, uh, the perfectly innocent Christ, perfectly for us, even giving his life for us. Thank you that he is the better leader toward which this story drives. Thank you that we know him. Please make us wholehearted followers of his as he leads. In Jesus' name, amen.